Well, good Saturday morning, Los Angeles. Welcome to the Apologetics.com radio program. My name is Lenny Esposito from Come Reason Ministries. I normally grace these airwaves once a month with my partners, uh, Dr. Harry Edwards and Dr. Jacob Daniel, both of whom could not join me tonight. So I'm flying solo, and I hope that we can have an engaging discussion, just you and me, but also that maybe you would want to come in and contribute. Uh, We have open phone lines throughout this hour, and we're going to be talking about things that really affect us and affect our lives every day, and that is how reasonable are people's beliefs. Now, I'm not talking about merely belief, say, in a religious context, because that is implicit, of course, in the apologetics realm. But broader beliefs, when people say things like, I trust the science, or we need to all conform to this procedure, to this standard, uh, we, our beliefs are such that they shape not only our actions, but the actions of others And that happens quite frequently, especially in those of political persuasion or uh, even economic conditions where we have uh, major corporations now either sponsoring people or canceling sponsorships, pulling book deals, things like that. Beliefs seem to be more and more important as they affect broader and broader areas of our lives. And I want to explore that a little bit because I don't think that we've thought it through very well. Again, this is the Apologetics.com radio program where we challenge thinkers to believe and believers to think. Uh, You can call in if you have a comment or question about anything related to this topic. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, The number here is 888-995-KKLA. That's 888-995-KKLA. Five 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 two, and I'll be here for the next hour just chatting with you. Okay, well, what what spurred this on? Well, of course, a few things have had me ruminating about the idea of beliefs, how we receive beliefs, how we form our beliefs, and what basis do we have upon which to hold our beliefs. And, of course, that leads into ideas of knowledge and truth as well. How do all of these aspects work together? I was reading an article uh, by uh, Jonah Goldberg in the Dispatch. He writes a weekly column called The G-File. And one of the things that he posted uh, was this, and I'll go ahead and read this section for you. He says, belief is a funny word. It's very close to the word faith, but just different enough to be interesting. If you Google faith versus belief, you get a lot of websites teasing out the differences in context of religion. We can get to that, but in my own mind, I think the difference is that faith is the more honest word. Because faith implies you know you're making a kind of leap of, well, faith. You're committing to a belief that you understand other people might not be able to adhere to or agree with. A, quote, leap of faith, end quote, sounds funny because belief suggests your opinion is supported by facts or an argument. 
While faith acknowledges you're putting your trust in something beyond the realm of the provable or obvious. He goes on to say, it's the difference between hope and probability, I guess. I have faith the Jets will make it to the Super Bowl is the triumph of hope over experience. While I believe the Jets will make it to the Super Bowl suggests you know something everyone else doesn't. The faithful are less likely to take a bet than the believers. The problem, however, is that a lot of people actually mean faith, but use belief. Now, I'm going to um, stop at that point because I have a a slightly different take than Jonah on this. I don't think that... uh, Belief means that you have some insider knowledge, and faith means you don't. I I think that's a little oversimplistic. Faith is simply a belief that is strong enough in your conviction that you can trust in it. You actually value it. So while a person may say, I believe the Jets will win the Super Bowl, they may be 50% plus one on that. That would be a a belief. They are not uh, neutral on that topic. But if you ask them to say, bet $100, well, they don't believe it enough to put that kind of money down. If they have faith in the Jets, they may have the exact same amount of information generating the belief as the first person we mentioned, but their belief is stronger. It's at least strong enough for them to trust that that is true. There, there may be beyond a, a, a reasonable doubt in their own minds, and therefore they would say bet a hundred dollars on that proposition. And in Christianity, we've used this quite often. The idea of faith isn't the idea of belief without evidence. It's belief based on evidence. But faith is more than belief, right? We understand this. Even the demons believe and shudder. No, faith is a trusting in Christ. Today, though, I think Jonah is on to something when he starts talking about how people use the word belief, and when they really mean they have a faith in something, because their belief is not necessarily based on knowledge. So you can have a faith in something or a belief in something that's not rational. You have an emotional belief. That's perfectly true. That can be a belief. It's something that you hold to be true, but it's not necessarily shaped or driven by the knowledge or the facts that you've come to obtain. It just simply may be something emotional or knowledgeable. So that's what I kind of want to explore. What's the idea of faith, belief, truth, knowledge? How do we know something is true versus just believe it to be true? Is there these differences? Philosophers, of course, have made this point over and over again. And how do we see that reflected in our society? Uh, In this article, I think that one of the things that Jonah is trying to say is uh, 
he's noticing the same thing that I'm noticing, that there is a lot of belief statements out there that are unsupported by any evidential value. So he says in the article, he continues, quote, it seems to me that most of the time when people say they believe the science, and he puts that in quotes, or even worse, when they say they, quote, believe in science, end quote, what they really mean is they have faith in it. More specifically, they mean they have faith in a very narrow slice of science that comports with their political or cultural priors. And he continues, Before I go on, let me make something clear. Very few people don't believe in the broad category of procedural inquiry known as science. The Amish believe in science. They just keep it at a kind of cultural and religious distance. Phrenologists, those are people who study bumps on the head, Flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, global warming deniers, and creationists believe in science, first of all. They'll all concede that the science, well, exists as a human endeavor in the same way that economics, engineering, linguistics, and art exists. If you've ever read Michael Behe, who is the foremost advocate for intelligent design, it will have been clear to you that he believes the science is on his side. I mean... He teaches at biochemistry at Lehigh University, which is a pretty good school for that kind of thing. Goldberg is quick to offer a disclaimer. He writes, I'm not saying I agree with him, but that's irrelevant to my point. Virtually every person who falls into the category of, quote, science denier, end quote, among the sorts of people who use that phrase, don't actually deny the science. Rather, they simply disagree with or are otherwise unpersuaded by some scientific finding or claim. Calling someone a science denier is almost always a logical fallacy, the appeal to authority. It's also often a form of intellectual or social bullying, and I agree with him there. Again, many of the people accused of denying science are wrong, and sometimes they're dishonest, but very few of them dispute the existence or even the authority of science to settle certain claims. Now, he goes on uh, on another tack, but this is kind of where I want to sit. Because our lives in the past year has been shaped primarily by listening to one facet of experts, epidemiologists, who have told us ways that we can combat the global pandemic known as COVID-19. And what I found fascinating is as we've learned more, as the science has progressed, as the results of dispassionate data have accumulated, many of those scientists are not following the data, they're following the political winds or the pressures that the public are pushing upon them. And I'm not saying that they're doing it begrudgingly. I'm saying that they're following it because they're part of the cultural milieu and they are therefore recipients and as much uh, biased in their um, teasing out or examining the evidence as anybody else. 
And that's a problem to me because we need to start thinking more clearly about these things. The primary focus in order for people to overcome, or I guess the population, I should say, to overcome COVID-19 was one of restriction. It was an unnatural approach. It's not natural for people to isolate themselves from one another for extended periods of time. It's not natural for people to mask their faces so you can't see their expressions. But we had heard that the science dictates this, and therefore that's what we should do. We still hear that, even though the variables have changed. The amount of information we understand has drastically changed, and our capacity and our tools with which to battle the disease itself have changed. Yet, many of the shops, cities, even this state uh, is dragging its feet to allow us to go back to our more liberal lives, our self-determined lives, because they want to be doubly sure. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they are believing other than it's not good political theater to allow people to make decisions for themselves that might prove self-harm. So that's that's what I'm starting with. That's that's where I'm I'm starting. And what I want to do is discuss a few things. So first thing what we want to do is we want to again tease out this idea of belief, knowledge, uh you know what what constitutes knowledge versus just a belief? How do we know something to be true as opposed to just believe it to be true? And then look at science and see how science has in the past approach these things. Has science been wrong? If you believe the science today, does that mean that you're believing the best data you can hold? Or does that mean that you're just believing the most popular data or the most popular uh, positions available? And I think, unfortunately, it's much more the latter. And there's been a history of that that we can trace through past scientific consensus in different areas of life. And we will see it even going forward. Uh, And so we'll talk about all of those things as we go along. Okay, first let's discuss what is knowledge, what is is faith, faith, what is belief. Famously, uh, a few years ago, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Stephen Hawking co-wrote a book with Leonard Mladenov called The Grand Design. And in that book, he basically started it off by writing this. He wrote, quote, We each exist but for a short time, and in that time explore but a small part of the whole universe. But humans are a curious species— We wonder, we seek answers. Living in this vast world that is by turns kind and cruel, 
and gazing at the immense heavens above, people have always asked a multitude of questions. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all of this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Most of us do not spend most of our time worrying about these questions, but almost all of us worry about them some of the time. Traditionally, these questions are, are for philosophy, but philosophy is dead, Hawking writes. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Now, that's quite a claim, especially since all of those statements that Hawking made, all of those questions that he's asking, are questions not of science, but of philosophy. How does Hawking know that philosophy is dead? What science did he do? Did he hook up philosophy to an EEG machine? Make sure that there's no heartbeat and there's no brain function? Well, obviously you can't do that. So if it's not science that's driving his pronouncement, philosophy has died, then what is it? Is Hawking leveraging philosophy to pronounce the death of philosophy itself? How does Hawking know that science is providing even the right answers? The whole point of the scientific enterprise is to create a model that gives us the best explanation for the data that we see. It's an inference to the best explanation. That's the scientific process, right? And, and anyone who's gone through high school has learned this, this scientific method. You create a hypothesis, you gather your data, you try to test your hypothesis by seeing if you can break it. And over and over again, scientific advancement has come because previously held consensus in science have been found wrong. That's how you do science. I mean, think of it this way. Would you want to have a doctor operating on you, doing a heart transplant, using a 50-year-old textbook? Absolutely not. Why don't you want a doctor to use a 50-year-old heart transplant textbook to do your operation? Because we've learned more than that. Those, there may be wrong stuff in there. There's probably wrong stuff in there. As we get better at it, we learn things that counteract some of the old adages. So understanding what knowledge is, what it means to discover truth, and how we can know that we can know things, that's an entire branch of philosophy. It's a, They use a kind of a $4 word called epistemology on, on that. How do we know that we know things? What is truth? Questions of that. See, first of all, knowledge requires you to believe in something. You have to have a belief before you can know something. You can't know something but not believe it. Let me give you an example. Now, if I gave you a sentence written in Chinese, would you believe that statement is true? You know, I mean, you can guess, but it would be a guess. It wouldn't be a belief. It would just be a, a random shot in the dark, right? If you don't read Chinese and you saw a Chinese statement, how would you know whether it's true or not? You couldn't form a belief on that. You, 
And if you can't form a belief on it, then you can't claim it to be true or false. But knowledge, we all understand knowledge is something that's not merely something we believe, but something that's true. You can have a positive belief, right? Such as the nature of reality can only be discovered through science, or a negative belief, like philosophy is dead. But you have to believe one way or the other. So in order to know something, there must be something to know. There has to be a truth out there. You have to believe that that truth is this objective thing that sits in contrast to your personal opinions. Whether I can write the check is irrelevant to the fact of whether there's money in the account. Money in the account is the truth of the matter. If I write the check and there's no money in the account, then what I'm doing is I'm lying on the checking account myself. I'm maybe deceiving myself. Now, I could be mistaken. I could be wrong. I don't have knowledge that there's no money in the bank. I believe that there is money in the bank. That, that's a mistaken belief, but that's not knowledge. Knowledge says that there's a truth out there. There's an objective truth. The truth is the bank account has enough money to cover this check, and therefore I can write the check with confidence. Now, there are in this, um, and we could go through different theories on truth. There's the pragmatic theory and the coherence theory. But basically, I hold to the correspondence theory of truth. That is, a claim is true if it corresponds to what is the case. There's an objective case out there, and we're seeking to discover it. That's what truth is, in my opinion. A belief is false if it doesn't correspond to what is so. So if God exists, for example, then it's a true statement that God exists, that God is there. And whether I choose to believe that or not, whether I'm engaging an atheist who doesn't believe it, it doesn't matter that the atheist doesn't believe it. God is still there. He doubts it, but he's simply wrong in his belief. Correspondence theory of truth makes sense because it does take me out of the equation. And as Christians, I think it does a good job of uh, being independent of who we are and centers truth on God himself. God grounds that truth. Now, science relies on this theory, the correspondence theory of truth, in order to discover things because it believes that there are things out there and whatever the scientific hypothesis is, whatever the, the scientist believes, the point of the scientific method, the point of experimentation is to see whether his beliefs do match the objective reality out there. Are they true or not? That's the whole point. That's why we try to break the hypothesis, so to speak. That's why you try to uh, say, okay, if I mix... Um, vinegar and baking soda, you know, and plug it up. Right? If you've ever done these as a as a uh, child, you had a little rocket and you'd put a pour baking soda and vinegar and a little tissue paper in between them, and you'd wait for those two things to get together. 
Um, and you would say, well, the, the acid versus the basic nature of those two components is going to cause a reaction, and uh, you're going to get a nice little uh, explosion, which is going to propel the rocket. So you have a couple of hypotheses, and you can test it over and over again and see if it ever fails. Um, but mostly what you'll find is, yes, when you mix baking soda and vinegar, you will get a reaction that will uh, create gases and cause an explosion. Absolutely. So there's a truth out there. We seek to find that truth. If our beliefs comport to the truth and we have justification for that, we've done, say, the experiment, we have some facts, uh, then we have knowledge. Now, some people may hold a true belief without having knowledge. Um, for example, I give the, op, uh, the illustration of two men who are overweight, uh, and one of them looks and studies the fact that uh, he needs to burn off more calories than he's consuming. He knows that uh, it's a strain on his heart. He, he takes all of this data, and so he starts running three miles every day. He loses weight, and he lives longer. A second man uh, doesn't – maybe he, he's isolated from Western society, and he doesn't know any of that stuff. What he does know is that his grandfather and his father and his tradition tells him that you have to every day run as fast as you can for three miles to flee the fat demons – because the demons will come and you will die an early death if you don't do so. So every day he runs three miles as well because he's holding to a belief that running three miles will make him live longer. Now that's a true belief. But the basis for his belief that the fat demons are chasing him and he has to outrun them each day is false. So that's not knowledge. He doesn't have knowledge of the fact that his running three miles is going to live longer, even though running three miles will make him live longer, just like the first man, because they're doing the exact same action. But only the first person has knowledge of why he will live longer. So we know that there's knowledge and we know that there's belief. Uh, after the break, I'm going to come back and talk about some scientific aspects of how these play out in the 20th century where following the science was wrong and then how we can apply it to our lives today and in our witnessing efforts. So stay tuned there. The mission of apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. 
Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. Have you allowed the voices of culture to silence the name of Jesus from your lips? In Acts 4, we hear a bold statement by Peter and John. They, too, were being pressured to keep silent about their faith. In verses 19 and 20, we read, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The disciples had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands the resurrected Lord. As a result, His glory was undeniable and their obedience to Him was irrepressible. Ladies, we can't let the world silence us. May God give us holy boldness to open our mouths and proclaim the name of Jesus. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org. Forgiveness and bitterness. Without the first, you will limp through life with the second. Hello, I'm Chuck Swindoll. Misunderstanding can breed deep-seated bitterness, which doesn't easily go away. Forgiveness must occur if you ever hope to be free of your painful past. That doesn't mean you agree with what happened. It doesn't necessarily mean you now have a close relationship with your offender. But it does mean you let it go forever. And, yes, to forgive does mean you ultimately need to forget. Bitterness deposits dangerous germs in our memory banks. You must forgive, and then you must let it go. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Welcome back to the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Lenny Esposito, your host. Uh, By the way, if you'd like to know more about me and my ministry, you can go to comereason.org. That's comereason.org. And there you'll find uh, thousands of articles that I've authored, podcasts, videos, things of that nature. I hope you will do so. hope you'll check it out and see more of what we're doing uh, in order to help uh, strengthen and provide convincing Christianity to a lost world. And also, if you're struck by this conversation, if if there's beliefs that you've seen out there that kind of bother you, like, why would somebody believe that? Or why are people asking me to believe X? Give us a call. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can call in right now, 995 995- KKLA, that's 888-995-5552, and I'd love to take your call and chat with you. So we had uh, spent the first half talking about what is knowledge, what is belief, and what is truth, uh, and is faith different than belief? And simply, faith is putting a trust in a belief where knowledge is having justification, having evidence or reasoning that underlies your belief, that undergirds your belief. It has to be justified, it has to be true, and you have to believe it in order to have knowledge. But when people talk about believing the science, I have problems with that. Because just like I read from the article of Jonah Goldberg, I think that that quip that 
what I call, you know, catchphrase is a little too easy to say and it's not well thought out. What science do you believe? What do you mean by science? I believe in science. You know, science tells us nothing. Scientists tell us things. They interpret the data and they come to conclusions. Science is a methodology. Science is the way, a kind of a systematic way to discover certain things, but it's the process, it's not the end result. Scientists give opinions, and scientists can be wrong. For example, there was a very famous court case in 1927. The Supreme Court heard a case for uh, called Buck versus Bell. And in this case, the Supreme Court was trying to decide the fate of a Miss Carrie Buck, who was born in Charlottesville in 1906 in Virginia. Her father died when she was very young. When she was three, her mother was committed to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded, mostly on the basis of her ongoing promiscuity. So she was committed to a uh, mental facility because she was highly promiscuous. Carrie Buck then lived with a foster family, developing pretty normally until she became pregnant at age 16. Now, Buck claimed she was raped by the family's nephew. Her foster family foisted the charge of promiscuity and feeble-mindedness on her as well and had her committed as also. The state of Virginia at this time had recently passed a law that the state could sterilize anyone found to be incompetent because of alcoholism, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness, insanity, or other factors. This was when eugenics was really coming into the fore in the United States. Eugenics was the scientific consensus at that time. And, as the Encyclopedia of Virginia puts it, quote, behind the law was the eugenics assumption that these traits, the ones of incompetence because of alcoholism, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness, etc., those traits were hereditary, and sexual sterilization could thus prevent their transmission. Uncertain that the new law could withstand a constitutional challenge, the framers and supporters of the law arranged to test it in court. They chose Buck in belief that she had inherited her feeble-mindedness from her mother and that her daughter, because remember Buck had a child at 16, showed signs of slow mental development as well. So there's a theory that feeble-mindedness, that Promiscuous women are inheritable traits from mother to daughter and that they should then sterilize Carrie Buck because what she's doing is diluting the human gene pool. And this was the consensus at that time. The U.S. Supreme Court heard the case in April of 1927 and on May 2nd of that year, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., speaking on behalf of an 8-to-1 majority, ruled that forced sterilization law was constitutional. In the majority opinion, Holmes famously wrote, quote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, 
Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination, that means forced sterilization, is broad enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes. Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 197 U.S. 11. Three generations of, of imbeciles are enough, Holmes famously wrote. Now, that's shocking. But if you were to push people on this, they would say that's the science of the day. Don't you believe in the science? Eugenics, these forced sterilization procedures, by the way, didn't go away right away. They were with us in the United States and continued through the 1970s. There are people still alive today who underwent forced sterilization and are looking for reparations. Today, we're aghast at this idea. The whole idea of eugenics is appalling on its face. But that was the science that one was supposed to believe in. Is that the only case? Is that the only time, though, that science has got it wrong? No. In a recent article uh, in the public discourse, Matthew J. Frank interviewed Dr. Paul McHugh. Now, Dr. Paul McHugh is a university distinguished service professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He served as the director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and he was the psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital from 1975 to 2001. No schlock guy. Has a lot of learning behind him. And when they're talking... Uh, It's interesting, uh, the interviewer asks him, he said, in one of your essays in The Mind Has Mountains, you observe the power of cultural fashions, and he's quoting McHugh here, the power of cultural fashions lead psychiatric thought and practice off in false, even disastrous directions. Notice that. Cultural fashions lead psychiatric thought, in other words, the science, off in false and even disastrous directions. And McHugh points out two specific recent versions of this. One was multiple personality disorder, right? Dissociative identity disorder, this, the famous Sybil case, which became very, very popular, but proved later to be a falsehood by the author. And the idea that multiple personality disorder was this distinct and uh, clear case really became it became the diagnosis uh, du jour at one point uh, but mostly it turned out to be nothing in reality he says the other idea of repressed sexual memories from childhood that adults can recover under therapy that was another one of these cultural fashions that had false accounts and paul McHugh said yes he goes i'm not sh- i'm not certain I understand why we're so vulnerable to this. It may well be in part that we are a discipline, that is psychiatry, that cannot often use bodily material like an autopsy or something to prove ourselves right or wrong. We have to use the power of persuasion to persuade patients and others to think the way we want them to think. And although that's the fundamental principle of psychotherapy, psychotherapy is a persuasive enterprise after all. 
That's what it is. It's nothing else but persuasion. Persuasion not only in psychiatry, but maybe even in a democracy. And its great vulnerability, as Tocqueville said, is the tyranny of popular sentiments. McHugh goes on to say, The tyranny of popular opinion can hold thrall a whole population, after all, for a while. I think psychiatry is vulnerable to that because it works with phenomena of mental life. And he writes, And problems of mental behavior, is, and it's therefore liable without another kind of tradition or another source of knowledge to be carried away. He says this happens every 10 or 15 years. He, he says... Psychiatry gets swept away by these fantasies of thought. And he goes on to point fingers at other things. Take the idea of lobotomization. Lobotomy. That was a way we used to treat people, scrambling the fronts of their brains. We don't do it anymore. Electroshock therapy, uh, very rarely. Why, Why were those so popular? Why was that the scientific consensus? Because they saw some results... But there are certain things that they wanted to see. There are certain assumptions that they made. And because of those assumptions, then they begin treating everyone that way. And McHugh says, you know, if somebody comes along and tells you, here's a wonderful magical secret that will open you to the nature of the world and the nature of humankind, it's usually silly in the wrong one. That's usually picked up, though, by people who have no traditional background of their own. After all, it's a kind of golden calf. You can come down from the mountain and really try to bring them something, and what do you find them doing dancing around the golden calf? I think that's an interesting parallel that McHugh makes. Now, Paul McHugh is most famously known because in the 1970s, John Hopkins University, with the psychiatry team at its helm, pioneered sexual reassignment surgery, sex change operations. And they thought at that time that this small sliver of the populace who were suffering from gender dysphoria, that they were individuals who were born in the wrong body, whatever that means, needed to have their bodies match their mental states, and that would help them. And what they found out is, no, it didn't. Ultimately, they had some initial relief in the first couple of years after surgery, but ultimately uh, their suicide rates were at least uh, the same as those who had never undergone surgery. Uh, Their substance abuse problems stayed the same. Their depression rates stayed the same. And they were doing surgery, cutting off healthy organs, with no net effect, basically. And McHugh, along with Dr. Lawrence Mayer, came out looking at the data and said, first of all, he said, we, we got to stop this. So Johns Hopkins stopped uh, doing surgeries, in, uh, I think it's in 2009. In 2016, when transgenderism was really kicking into gear, he... And Lawrence Mayer authored a, a article in the New Atlantis titled Sexuality and Gender Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences. And he says, I was prompted the idea that I at least ought to say something. This is why I wrote this essay. 
in about this matter because so many ideas were floating around and if I couldn't speak, who could? And when I looked at the scientific evidence of these things, the very idea that they were immutable and discreet and people were, quote, born that way, well, it didn't work from a science point of view and they might in our society not be such good ideas, not good things for people to believe. So I thought, well, if I can't speak at my stage in my development, then nobody can speak and I'll see what happens. And of course, people came back at him and it, most of the people who criticized the paper criticized it without any evidence. They just didn't like the conclusion, so they want him to be quiet. He mentions that. They all say, well, it's bunk. Or they said, it's not peer-reviewed, so therefore it's not science. And that's nonsense. He's using peer-reviewed data. He's, again, just drawing the conclusion. And that's the problem that we see even today. Uh, He notes that what we're doing now is even more dangerous because the science is now taking puberty blockers to children. We are literally experimenting on our kids and seeking to see how they fare. And McHugh is very right to say puberty is a very complex process. He says it's one of the great transforming neuroendocrine events in anyone's life, and we know only some parts of it. We don't know, for example, what triggers puberty. Back in 2005, the journal Science published its, I think, 125th anniversary issue, and they said here are 125 big problems that remain for science. One of them was what triggers puberty. It's a big mystery, but for one of the things we do know is that the human being is very different from ordinary animals. With the animal, if they successfully go through puberty, and they go through it rather young, at the end of that, fundamentally, they are complete. They're the complete being that they're going to be. With human beings, some of the most interesting individuating characteristics of themselves occur only after puberty, probably with a combination of the intellectual powers and the energy that sexual development brings. So it's He says, scientists have one great vulnerability. They can be dealing with the most complex issues and try to oversimplify it and make it seem like a simple issue. And that's true. The COVID-19 crisis is another example of this. So if you're an individual who's been vaccinated, we have about 97 million, well, we have, we're, we're getting more and more each day. I'm not sure what the stats are as of today. But when the CDC reported this a couple of weeks ago, we had 95 million people in this country who had been vaccinated from COVID-19. Of those 95 million, about 7,000 and change, 7,908 if I remember the number correctly, um, came would test positive for the virus. Okay, that's that's a percentage rate of an incredibly low amount. 95 million seven, seven you're like 1 in 23,000 to even test positive. Now, testing positive isn't necessarily a, a anything to worry about because the majority of those folks matter of fact, uh, what was it? 6600 of them or so had no symptoms or or were so mild that they weren't really bothered by them. Only 498 had any type of hospitalization. And I the, the deaths were in 
simply the double digits. They were 63 or they were very low. Out of 95 million, basically, you have a greater chance of getting struck by lightning than you do of getting sick with COVID after you've been vaccinated. Yet, our epidemiologists continue to wear masks on news talk shows. Why? Why are they advocating for masks even in closed spaces with that kind of a success rate? It makes no sense. There's no science behind it. The data is, is pretty clear. That's a pretty large sample size. But you see, there's a population and there's a pressure point to conform to an idea of safety with no other discussion. Of course, this brings the question to the larger issue of why is science itself, coming back to Stephen Hawking, why is science the ultimate arbiter of what is safe and what is true and what is the best way forward? Maybe some risk is warranted. Maybe the gentleman who needs to have his business opened so he can survive Maybe that takes precedence over making sure absolutely no one catches a disease. You know, there's a simple way to um, reduce automobile crashes in our country. You ban cell phones. You just ban them. People don't text and drive and the number of automobile crash rates will drop. Or you ban all fast food places and, uh, you know, you might see a drop in heart disease. We don't do that. Why? Because we understand that while people can make poor choices, there's a freedom that exists that's more important. The principle of freedom itself is more important than keeping everyone else safe. There's a belief that freedom does have value. So why should we believe that we should trust the science because the science is safe, safe for some, not safe for all others, not safe for the guy who won't be able to pay his mortgage in a year, not safe for the family who can't feed all of their children, not definitely not safe for the national debt and things of that nature, right? There's all of these issues that come to the fore that we just don't talk about because we believe the science or trust the science when the science isn't really telling us what they think it's telling us. I mean, where does this belief come from and is this even approaching anything like knowledge? Well, of course not. You have to have justification for your belief. You should at least have some kind of evidence for your belief. You shouldn't hold to an emotional belief, even within your faith tradition. One of the blessings of Christianity is that it's always been a faith based on facts. It's a faith based on historic evidence. From the very first day Christianity emerged, when Peter came down on the day of Pentecost, he appealed to the crowd and he says, You know these things. No, we haven't been drinking. They heard them speaking in tongues. They thought, oh, maybe they're drunk. Oh, can't be drunk. They're only 9 o'clock in the morning. How do they know all of our languages? You know what happened here, Peter says. He appeals to their 
understanding of news events, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, that he rose from the dead. You can go check out his tomb. He's not there. Look for the body. Paul does the same thing when he's talking to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I first gave unto you, when I got there, I first offered you the exact same message that I first received when I believed, that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, died, was buried, rose the third day, appeared to the disciples, appeared to Peter, appeared last of all to one as untimely born as myself, and some of those people he appeared to, yeah, they went to sleep. They died. Others, they're still around. You can go ask them. Check me out. There's evidence here. That's the key of Christianity. It never asks you to take a, quote, blind leap of faith. It is always faith based on fact, justification for your belief. You can have evidence that what you believe is true, which means that you can have knowledge of the resurrection. So, I bring all this up because you can see how just believing the science. Belief is, is so easily thrown about, like you should just believe anything because everybody else is doing it. Well, that didn't work out very well for Carrie Buck and those who suffered under eugenics. That didn't work out very well for the people upon whom lobotomies were performed. That didn't work out very well for the individuals who suffered uh, multiple different theories and, and um, procedures in order to cure them of their dementia. And unfortunately, folks, it's not going to work out very well. We're starting to see a downfall now of individuals who regret going through transgenderism. And as our children mature and as they realize the horrific extent to which we've experimented on them, cutting off their body parts, robbing them of their fertility, changing forever their entire emotional development through puberty-blocking drugs, we are going to see a fallout that's going to be wholesale in its level of destruction. Dr. McHugh believes that this is going to be the case as well. As he studied the issue, he says it's going to come tumbling down. There's going to be a whole lot of individuals who are wounded in the wake of this. I think we will eventually cast it you know, on that same rubbish pile as many of these other approaches that so um, easily were entertained in the 20th century. But what we're going to see today, uh, what, or what we're going to see tomorrow, is going to be a direct result of the flippancy with which we claim scientific certainty in our beliefs today. So what do you think about all this? How do you, how do you react to it all? I hope that you approach these things with a little bit of prayer and a whole lot of humility, because sometimes 
again, in the cultural milieu in which we live, we don't think about how we can have the most trusted figures in our society, the scientists, the people who are leading us in decisions that affect entire, uh, really the entire country, uh, how they can be led astray and what if they're wrong. And I know people, well, you're not a scientist. How can you know they're wrong? Well, you can, you can make logical deductions. You can, again, look at the results yourself. The data is the data. The question is, how are they interpreting it? Also, you can look at the data for belief in God, for belief in Christ, and know how that stacks up against the other faith systems of the world. Unfortunately, that would be a whole other show, so I couldn't uh, explore that next. But maybe we'll do that some other time. Until then, I hope you have a good morning. Uh, I've enjoyed being with you and talking with you. Uh, Have a blessed day. This is Lenny Esposito for Apologetics.com.